Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome, man. This week, I have a special part one of a two-part conversation with Roy Snell, uh, the now uh, past president of the HCCA and SCCE. And also, uh, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes here before we start our chat with Roy, talking a little bit about um, training the board of directors. I recently had two different uh, inquiries about training uh, from uh, compliance professionals that uh, stated very specifically, I can't afford uh, to bring in the white shoe firm. I can't afford to bring in anybody uh, to train my board. I've got new board members. Uh, what should I do? I've got you know 15 minutes. The clock is going to be ticking. Uh, what should I do? And I'm going to talk about three things uh, you want to impart to a board of directors, particularly a uh, board of directors that has new members uh, that you're trying to, uh, for lack of a better term, indoctrinate into the ways of compliance and ethics. There are responsibilities for that. So I'll talk about that in a minute. And uh, then we'll also have the conversation with Roy, which uh, I'm really pleased he agreed to talk to us again. Roy was on our very first podcast uh, almost two years ago. Um, he uh, has been a great friend of this podcast all along, and I'm happy to have him back. Uh, also, um, I want to mention that I have an upcoming webinar again on Code of Conduct. Uh, for those of you who were unable to join us in the prior iterations of the Code of Conduct um, webinar, um, it's often the, the somewhat distant future. It's going to be on January uh, the 17th of 2019. Uh, so I don't have a link yet, uh, but I will be mentioning it in an upcoming podcast so that you, those of you who are interested can sign up. Uh, but if you want to go ahead and pre-mark your calendar uh, for the afternoon of January the 17th at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, we are going to once again uh, delve into what makes an effective code of conduct. So keep that in, in mind. So board of directors training. I've done a couple of uh, discussions about this in the past. I even did a webinar uh, uh, that has a lot more information in it. Uh, and if you're interested in uh, listening to a recording of that webinar or getting those slides, just get in touch with us. Uh, happy to share. Um, uh, but first, before I talk about the three things, three components that you want to make sure that you have in your board training, I think it's important to just talk for a second about why it's important to train the board. First of all, it's a requirement in many cases. Uh, it is certainly in, in, mentioned in the sentencing guidelines that uh, training uh, covers everyone, including directors. Uh, the, the Those who have oversight over the program need to understand what their responsibilities are, need to understand what's going on. Uh, so, um, you know, the th sort of threshold question for those of, who haven't trained in the past, who are finally getting that opportunity or, or that opportunity is being discussed and there needs to be a push, I think it's important to mention uh, to those who are making that call uh, that it is important uh, that, you know, it goes right to the heart of basic director responsibilities to discharge their duties in good faith and with care, um, and that they do, do need uh, to understand uh, their responsibility and the components of compliance program to, to effectively 
complete their role as a, a director of the board. And that's not just the audit committee of the board of directors or whichever subdivision is ultimately responsible for your code. That's all directors, by the way. Um, so that's an important thing uh, to, to, to impart at the beginning so that you can um, uh, make that justification if you need to make that justification uh, as to why it needs to happen in the first place. So what are the three kind of basic key components that you want to get in uh, when you have that discussion with the co with the uh, board, when you get that, you know, sometimes I understand it's going to only be 15 minutes, you know, get up there. Uh, this is the only opportunity you have. Uh, what do you say? First and foremost, I want you to think about giving them the business case for compliance, particularly if this is your first or a rare opportunity to talk to them. You want to talk about uh, what we're often now calling ROE, return on ethics. You want to talk about how compliance and ethics, how what you do, how what the organization does around compliance and ethics affects the bottom line. You need to talk about things like compliance uh, and ethical culture, uh, are how, how they can be integral to business operations, how it affects reputation, how culture, culture issues, ethical issues will impact uh, performance at the organization, how they can have uh, impact on, I've talked about many, many times about uh, there's data out there that shows that this impacts recruitment and retention efforts. Uh, you want to be able to make that business case for compliance at the organization. Uh, getting in, getting and keeping great staff is a compliance issue. Uh, that is something uh, you need to be able to impart to them. You need to make it matter to them. And that's why I'm mentioning it first. Um, I think in the past when I would talk about this, I might talk about uh, requirements. I might talk about what their role is and oversight. You know, the things that we naturally come, come to our mind when we think about the board of directors and their role in compliance. But I, I think more and more that you want to hit them first with some sort of business case, with return on ethics, with uh, some data about why this is important and why it matters, and how you're, and perhaps how you're integrating it into the business uh, of the organization. Uh, how you're, for instance, supporting managers uh, with materials and manager manager toolkits or other materials, so that they can be an important part of your compliance program. I think that that is really, really important, and and should be number one. Uh, again, I think that I, you know, didn't really think about it uh, when I first started talking about training the board. Uh, you know, I, w I would mention the business case because I have been for years now. But the more I think about it, I, the more I believe really that ought to be your lead. The other reason I think it's important to to get them interested and understand the the, the sort of uh, enterprise role of compliance is that expectations have changed. And, and this can be part of that kind of threshold question I talked about a couple minutes ago about why it's important. Uh, if you go back to the February um, 2017 uh, memo that I talk, I've talked about many times on this podcast from the Department of Justice, uh, when talking about the Board of Directors, the DOJ has used this term expertise. Well, how are they going to get that expertise if they don't already have it, if they aren't already uh, uh, veterans of, of uh, being uh, having oversight over compliance programs, being on the audit committee? If they're new in particular, how do they get that expertise? Well, they get it through training. Um, and again, this means the whole board, not just the audit committee. Uh, the whole board has oversight 
over the program. This is something that gets lost sometimes. Not just the audit committee or whatever subdivision of the board is uh, is hearing your, your regular compliance report if it's assigned to a, a, a subcommittee. This training, training on compliance and the importance of compliance is a whole board experience, so keep that in mind. Uh, the second thing that I uh, that, that is really important to impart to the board of directors is to make sure that they understand your program. If you have a program charter or some sort of description of your program, if you're that mature, uh, they need to be familiar with that. Uh, if there's a annual report or a quarterly report or a roadmap that talks about initiatives, not just reports on uh, uh, that have come on the hotline or helpline or how many people have been trained or how they've been trained, not just reporting on what's going on, but talk about initiatives. What are your plans for the future? Are you going to be uh, undertaking a new code of conduct? Are you going to be undertaking uh, any new systems or tools? Are you going to be, you know, for instance, applying for a world's, world's most ethical designation with the Ethisphere Institute or something like that? You know, those initiatives need to be part of the discussion about the program, uh, not just kind of the traditional reporting on the program that we think of, which is talking about investigations, training, uh, uh, also, part of this would be talking about benchmarking and assessment, whether you're doing that internally or maybe inter internal audit took a look at a particular part of your program, or you're working with uh, an outside organization, a third party, to do some sort of benchmarking and assessment. That is something that you'd want to discuss with them. Talk to them about the program. Talk to them about initiatives, what's going on, not just the data that comes up through the systems. One other thing that I would mention here, though, which I've talked about before, um, and I think is really important when you're talking about them understanding your program is get them a login for any online training or, or, or that you have going on or, or get them uh, the information so that they can log on to a webinar of a live training event that's going to be happening. Uh, again, I, I see still pretty frequently organizations are reticent to have the uh, board of directors, uh, uh, quote unquote, take the training. Um, there are, for in most systems, most LMSs, most uh, code of conduct training programs, for example, there are ways to allow them access that doesn't require them to actually go through and do the whole thing, but that they can um, review and look at the material. They need to be familiar with, particularly if you do a code of conduct training, if you do kind of a, a large, you know, multi-risk type of training on an annual or regular basis, they need to understand what the components of that training um, are and, and how it's presented uh, to the uh, rank and file of the organization. Uh, so if they don't have a login, if they're not familiar with uh, that, that training that you do or, or some uh, uh, training, training uh, efforts that you do, whether those are online or live, uh, get them indoctrinated in that, get them a login. I think that's really important. And then the last of the three kind of main things that you need to keep in mind when you're training the board is train them on specific risks. Uh, oftentimes, uh, these, these risks uh, pertain to their role. So you'll see conflicts of interest, insider trading are often uh, presented to the full board of directors. But I think that you need to, again, uh, understand that all of the directors, the full board, are responsible for oversight of the risk 
and the operations of your organization and the compliance program of your organization if, for example, data security and data privacy is a top-level risk for your organization. I think it would make sense for you to train on this, that specific risk. If anti-corruption is a top-level risk for your organization, uh, perhaps you're engaging in a lot of M&A activity and you're acquiring organizations that are operating in difficult environments. Well, that's uh, training on that subject is something that ought to happen at the board level and include all of the directors because, again, they all have oversight over the entire program. So I hope that's helpful. I, I know that's uh, kind of shot through a lot of uh, information where we could spend a little bit more time on, and I think I will come back to some of these and maybe spend a whole episode just talking about each in particular piece. But again, the three things that if you only have 15 minutes that you want to touch on, that you want to try to impart some information on is one, uh, making them understand that this is a business, bottom line business issue. It's a business risk. It's a reputation risk. Uh, making sure that you make that business case, that return on ethics case to them. And again, I think you lead with that so that you, you, know, you, you get some very secure allies on the board. And then maybe next time you'll get more than 15 minutes. Uh, the second is make sure they understand what's going on with the program and not just uh, uh, data. In fact, I, if you have a data packet that's pretty self-explanatory, I don't think you spend as much time talking about how many calls you had and how many investigations are ongoing. I think you spend some time talking more about initiatives uh, in that limited amount of time that you have. And then lastly, uh, talk about specific risks. Uh, obviously, if you just have a few minutes, you can't talk about a lot, but you m want to at least introduce those risks, those enterprise risks, that, that the compliance risks that your organization is facing um, and, and discuss them with that wider group of the entire board of directors. So I hope you found that helpful. Um, as always, if you have any questions, comments, uh, want to suggest uh, some topics that we might cover in the future, uh, please do get in touch with us. You can find us at moreheadconsulting.com or compliancebeat.com. Uh, you can email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Uh, happy to entertain anything. So uh, I want to uh, move on to the discussion with our friend Roy Snell. Uh, this is part one of a two-parter. Uh, so tune in next week for the back half of the conversation. Um, I found it very, uh, as I always do, find it very informative and helpful to talk to Roy, and I hope that you find the same. Roy Snell is truly one of those people in our profession in compliance and ethics that you can truly say needs no introduction. He is the former CEO of the Healthcare Compliance Association, the HCCA, and the Society for of Corporate Compliance and Ethics, the SCCE. He is a frequent author and writer on the compliance and ethics profession. Uh, he is a man with lots of ideas about uh, compliance and ethics uh, that he has graciously shared with us over the years. Uh, he's also the former compliance officer at the University of Wisconsin Medical Center and Hospital. Welcome, Roy. Hello, Eric. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Well, Roy, uh, one thing that uh, you and I have talked about in the past and I've heard you speak on, but maybe some of our listeners haven't heard about is uh, sort of the genesis of uh, the Society for Corporate Compliance and Ethics. Um, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, you know, why it happened, why it started when it did, and some of the goals that the initial founders of SCC, SCCE had at that time. You know, um, 
I, I worry about answering these questions sometimes because if you were to ask others that were around and involved, they might give you a little bit a little different, different answers. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to qualify mine with this is what was on my mind or why I felt we did it. And um, uh, there's a lot of noble answers uh, to this, like helping others. But we had been involved in helping to find the compliance profession in healthcare for years. And uh, out of the corner of the, our eye, we were watching the evolution of the compliance and ethics professionals' role in other industries. And, and frankly, to be perfectly honest, it was quite terrifying. Um, <laughs> there were people trying to define it as all about the law or all about risk or all about audit or all about ethics. It just seemed to me that nobody was coming into it blindly uh, in a positive way and starting from scratch and considering all elements of a compliance program. Uh -huh. It just seemed to me that a lot of other professions were saying, oh, uh, we've had our profession for a while, and now we can add this word compliance to it and rejuvenate our longstanding profession. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of the bad habits of people coming into this profession in any way is bringing forward a monolithic or a, a single view of what the job is. In other words, if you have a prosecutor come into our profession, uh, they will think everything is a, a nail in there, the hammer, and that everybody is doing badly. And that's because they ran into, you know, just one bad organization after another. They, they had, by design, had a kind of dim view of the world. The, the huh. defense attorneys is the same way, that, that uh, the opposite, but biased, you know, that, that we're all innocent and the government is overreaching. Uh, and uh, audit, thought it was all about auditing and ethics. Uh, folks thought it was all about telling everybody to be ethical. And and really, the best perspective was to do exactly what the U.S. sentencing guidelines suggested we do, which is all elements of a compliance program. And it just seemed to me that some people came in without any bias in, w in one of the elements had got, got going a little quicker. Now, people who join our profession from another profession, which is pretty much everybody, uh, would over time... Uh, get it, but some of the efforts to guide the profession by these other professional associations, I just I I felt they were driving our profession in into the ditch and with just an unbelievable bias towards their favorite element. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's funny we were just talking about this a few moments ago here in the office that. Um, the, the idea came up at a HCCA strategic planning meeting. Everybody was immediately uh, all in, and uh, we haven't looked back since. Uh, uh -huh. It's very helpful uh, uh, to. Um, I, I, I just I just think that the, that we gave people an alternative uh, that they they seemed to like and. Uh -huh. um, I'd like to think we've helped.
Oh, I, I, th I think that's uh, easy to see through the years, but also, you, you know, you warm my heart when you talk about the sentencing guidelines. And uh, I, I will admit, uh, anytime I talk about it, I have a particular bias towards the sentencing guidelines because of my background. But I think the, the you know, I ha when I, I've had this discussion a couple of times where uh, people who particularly people who don't come from a legal background and are learning about the guidelines for the first time, perhaps to take their uh, CCEP exam, perhaps just because they under they've heard that they need to understand the guidelines and they'll, and the question, it comes in different forms, but it's often uh, what's the most important thing about uh, the sentencing guidelines? Why are the sentence gu sentencing guidelines um, so important still uh, you know, 25 years in, and and uh, my flippant answer is, well, they were first. But the real answer, I think, <laughs> is is uh, uh, is flexibility, and I think that's what you're really talking about here. Is right. that the, the guidelines are are you know, it's hard to have a one size fits all regulation. That's that those don't seem to work together. But the the the, the genius, if you will, of the sentencing guidelines, uh, and I think it's also the fact that. The, the the sentencing commission, uh, either by design or uh, just be just because of the nature of the organization, doesn't constantly tinker with the sentencing guideline standards for an effective program. Uh, but but by design, it's meant to to really work for any organization, yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't hamper the definition of the role by giving you by constricting it in any any particular way. Um, and I, I think that's the, you know, if there's a one answer as to why, why the sentencing guidelines are still important to us, um, although we, you know, we drift, we drift back and forth about the relative importance, it's because of that. And, and that uh, it aligns with this notion that this isn't a legal responsibility. It isn't an audit responsibility. It isn't an HR responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. Yeah. And, and I think that that uh, really dovetails with the goals uh, that uh, I've, you know, that attract me to the SCCE uh, and, and, and have uh, over the years, right? if that makes we, any we have, sense. Well, yeah, I think we've had the same sort of underlying mission of, of the sentencing guidelines is stay, stay focused, uh, keep it simple. You'll, you'll find folks out there that have 100-page-long descriptions of a compliance program, one 700 pages. And uh, because the sentencing guidelines are so simple and short to the point, you can't help but think about the key elements of a compliance program. And I think, in part, that's what some other folks were trying to do that was taking our profession off into the ditch is write these hundred page definitions of what a compliance program and have a little bias by the end of the document people really can't remember what's important mm -hmm. there was a book book written a long time ago keep it simple stupid or the theory there was a theory in a book or whatever kiss theory and uh it, it got kind of beat to death but it, there's some real truth to that is the sentencing guidelines keep it simple it's impossible to be confused about what it's a there, there, there's probably the best way I could word it. It is impossible to be confused about what a compliance program after you read chapter eight of the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's impossible to understand what a compliance program is after reading some of these other folks' documents. <laughs> 
<laughs> or at least confusing. Um, yep. So, so, so starting from that place, uh, you know, t- approximately 20 years ago and 25 years ago, if we're going back to the sentencing guidelines uh, and the goals that were uh, established by, by, by both the SEC and other organizations and, and, and the goals in Chapter 8, you've seen obviously a lot of changes from the perspective of, of running a professional organization of compliance officers. Uh, there be, there's been a lot that's happened and, and a lot of it's been very positive and there's been a lot of growth. Uh, but you know, growth may not be, uh, is not an end all be all. What are, what do you think are the most dramatic or important changes that you've seen over the last two decades? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, um, it's interesting. I would get, I would give the same answer every year for the last 20 years. And I'd, probably give it for the next 20 is that I think those of us who've been involved for a long time understand what needs to happen to prevent, find, and fix ethical and regulatory problems in organizations. It's just a matter of time before everybody does. And so whereas we would like to have had 100% support from leadership on day one or lots of resources on day one or employees more committed to to preventing, finding, and fixing problems in their departments. Um, it's just never in the cards. It never, never, it's just not how things work. Things have to evolve over time. It takes a while to educate a planet, yes. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> and and uh, so uh, we have more respect. The compliance, profe- compliance and ethics profession has more respect uh, from leadership. We have uh, increasing authority and responsibility. Um, we have uh, increased understanding of the average employee about what a compliance and ethics department does. Um, and every year it'll get better. It, it, this this is this is n- not going to stop unless mm-hmm. somebody comes up with a better way to prevent, find, and fix ethical and regulatory problems. And you can't do it by just auditing. You can't do it just by discussing the rule of law. You can't do it by just doing a risk assessment. You can't mm-hmm. do it by just telling people to be ethical yeah. it has to be all those tools rolled into one and more and uh i find it hard to believe that there will ever be a better way mm-hmm. I, I, I we may have an eighth element or a tenth element and frankly you and i know that the seven elements are kind of an amorphous thing but you, you know we may have more tools down the road uh, but I really doubt that there will ever be something other than a compliance and ethics department and a compliance and ethics officer to prevent, find, and fix ethical and regulatory problems. And the short answer to your question is things that, everything that we want to get better will get better every, every year as people uh, have a better understanding of what it is we do. Yeah, no, and on that one point you were making, you were about uh, tools and resources uh, and the and the role uh, not going away. I I have been, and I don't know if you've seen this, but over the last few years, uh, particularly before Wells Fargo, since Wells Fargo, I haven't heard this as much, but in the financial sector, and, and there there was a lot of talk about oh, tools are going to overtake 
uh, humans. And, and, and we're going to get to the point where we have these uh, software solutions and other solutions that are going to, you know, run compliance and we're, you know, going to get to zero, you know, <laughs> get to zero issues. Well, you know, I, I don't know what the budget for uh, Wells Fargo's compliance apparatus uh, was prior to them having to pay massive fines and get rid of all of their executives. Uh, but I'm sure it was, uh, you know, many, many, many times more than the average yep. uh, compliance budget. And I'm sure they had a lot of sophisticated tools and they were, and they probably caught a lot of the types of r compliance risks that they already knew were out there. Uh, and, and, and they were probably very good at catching those particular risks, you know, violations of, uh, you know, not uh, properly registering securities or whatever it might be. Uh, but they were not very good <laughs> at, the, at some very cultural, very basic cultural issues uh, that undermined uh, their, their, uh, their, their program and ultimately their bottom line. Um, so I think with, I'm with you. I think that, that, that it's not going to go away. I think there are a lot of people, particularly those that look at the bottom line, and still see compliance as a um, revenue negative uh, attribute of an organization and want to do away with uh, as much expense as, as, as they possibly can, not seeing you know, the return on ethics or, or the return on, on a, an effective compliance program that we, and we're still, I mean, part of the problem of being old lawyers or old uh, uh, HR people, uh, maybe not so much old auditors, but coming from uh, a perspective where I think where like at least I'll speak for myself as an as a lawyer, I'm not as comfortable just in justifying the the revenue potential of of my of, of my role as I probably should be, um, and uh, you know why why it's a bottom line why compliance is a bottom line issue continues to be uh, a fight that we need to get better at fighting. But um, I I, I got to tell you one thing that you made sure. me think of here with regard to the future is. Uh, and I'll just be more specific on what I said generally before, that people be, be, be greater understanding. Uh, you know, the road is littered with CEOs who were, uh, some of them disgorged of their uh, millions of dollars. Others were just, uh, you know, shamed and thrown out into the street and their careers were ruined and their jobs were lost. Um, at some point, CEOs are going to realize that there's two big ways to lose your job and fail. One is uh, financial failure, and the other is ethical and regulatory disasters. I I I know a lot of people don't share this. They, they you know particularly ethicists pretty much point fingers at every company and say they're all greedy, terrible people. But I don't believe that for a second. I think CEOs are going to uh, start to realize that they're going to want their compliance and ethics officer tied at their hip and told two things. If anybody ever tries to prevent you from implementing an element of a compliance program, come see me. If anybody ever tries to prevent you from fixing a known problem, come see me. I, I, I think compliance programs are eventually going to be seen by CEOs as an asset to them personally and to yeah. the company. And and that it, it's uh, a revenue retention center as opposed to a cost center. That if certainly the people at Wells and Michigan State and Penn State and many others that have spent millions recovering from a disaster and paid some fines um, 
wish they had that money back and wish they'd invested a tenth of it to prevent some of the problems that they had. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And 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 also, you know, I haven't I haven't been uh, going to, uh, for instance, going to the CEI, uh, the Compliance and Ethics Institute, uh, as long as you have, obviously, because you were there for the first one. Uh, but I, the you know, one gauge that I see when I go, and we're just now back a couple weeks from the latest one, is when you look at the the tools that are available and how they're driven more and more by data. Um, you yeah. know, it's a good it's a good thing and a bad thing because data data for data's sake can, is just noise. But if but as we get better uh, as a profession, those of us that come from the legal side or from a non-analytical side, shall we, or non non-financial analytic side, shall we say, uh, get better at justifying and showing showing value and showing trend, uh, positive trend uh, in in the programs that we put together. I think that that is going to start to alleviate some of that black box issue that we've had, where we where we we know. And we will make the argument, no, this is important, but it's not only the argument of you don't want to end up in the jail cell or, or giving back your million-dollar bonus. Uh, you also want to look at the bottom line here and how we're, how we're preventing issues, how we're uh, heading issues off at the pass. We're creating controls to better uh, manage uh, the, the success of the organization. And that's something that, I, I, you know, again, I'm not afraid to say as a lawyer, I'm I'm not. I, I I I think that we have not been as good at uh, historically, but I think we're getting better at, and that's an that's yeah. a change that I've seen. So that's uh, part one of a two-part discussion with Roy Snell, former CEO of SCCE and HCCA. Um, as I mentioned, the second part, part two, will be on the podcast next week. So please tune in then to hear. The continuation of this conversation. I hope you found it as uh, fun and enjoyable and interesting and helpful as I did. Um, as always, uh, please do get in touch. Please do subscribe to uh, Compliance Beat if you haven't already. That makes a difference for us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com. 